What are the most pressing issues that you want the United States to follow within the coming year? The issue of reproductive health and rights of women, particularly uh, women of racial and ethnic origin and also indigenous women. You know, the aftermath of the DOPS decision, we then asked the state party to tell us within a period of one year, what measures are they going to take to mitigate, you know, the impact of the DOPS decision? That's one of them. The second one related to the gun violence and we said also they must give us within one year measures that they're going to adopt to ensure uh, to deal with issues of gun violence, the laws that they're going to, to adopt. For the follow-up, um, we identified um, one issue with regard to the rights of indigenous peoples, in particular measures taken to provide funding to implement statutes and policies that address the missing and murdered indigenous people crisis. Uh, that is one aspect of indigenous peoples. And we actually asked um, the state party to, or we identified everything we said on indigenous peoples as an, um, an issue of particular importance where we would expect information in the next periodic review. And then also in the context of migrants, the rights of migrants, refugees and asylum seekers and stateless persons. Here, the committee identified a question on mandatory detention um, and due process for non-citizens um, which are detained, including access to legal counsel. Here we would like information within one year on what has been, what measures have been taken to improve the situation. Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for being here with us. I'm your guest host this hour, Nana Jumphy, filling in by invitation for the fierce and fantastic host, of Sojourner Truth, Margaret Prescott. You just heard from the Honorable Pansy Telekula, the country rapporteur of the review of the United States by the Committee on the Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, also known as the CERD, speaking at the August 30th press briefing on the committee's findings and recommendations. We will come back to unpack this a little more later on today. We live in a global world. We are all interrelated. So in Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted, women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the relationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead. Hell no, Joe! Hell no, Joe! Environmentalists, Appalachian, and indigenous communities rallied at the nation's capital Thursday to oppose plans brokered by Democratic leaders and West Virginia Democrat Senator Joe Manchin to fast-track fossil fuel projects in exchange for Manchin's support of the Inflation Reduction Act, which President Joe Biden has signed. Here's one of the many speakers yesterday. We have to fight. We have to push back. We have to raise our voices. We have to tell Joe whether it's a mansion or a, ben, or a Biden, <laughs> hell no. We won't go any further. The line stops and we're going to draw it here. 
The side deal would fast-track projects like the Mountain Valley Oil Pipeline in Mansions District. According to Oil Change International, it would spew tens of millions of tons of greenhouse gases each year. Youth activists also spoke at the rally, like Hunter. Hello, my name is Danger, and I'm going to read something. My life means more than your money. Water is sacred. Water is life. Without water, we have no future. Earlier in the day, independent Vermont senator slammed the side deal on the Senate floor. To express my strong opposition to the so-called side deal that the fossil fuel industry is pushing to make it easier for them to pollute the environment and destroy our planet. The language of the legislation has not been drafted. A new study published in Science finds the climate emergency is on the brink of a tipping point that could have irreversible, abrupt, and dangerous impacts on humanity. It warns of several tipping points that may have already passed, including the melting of Greenland's ice sheet, Amazon rainforest destabilization, and the collapse of the Gulf Stream. It says the world must do everything possible to limit global heating to what 1.5 degrees Celsius. The Biden administration has announced new military aid package for Ukraine upwards of $2 billion. That comes just a day after President Joe Biden announced a $675 million package in defense to Ukraine. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin spoke about that Thursday. In Germany, Christopher Martinez has more. The new aid includes the much-vaunted HIMARS mobile rocket systems, along with howitzers and artillery ammunition, HARMS anti-radar missiles, Humvees and armored ambulances, along with small arms and more. Similar weapons that Ukraine has already received have been showing up in dramatic Ukrainian military operations in the Kherson area in the south, as well as an unexpected attack in the east. Of course, this has all prompted more heated threats from Russia against U.S. and other allies that send arms to Ukraine. Some Russian officials have warned the Western allies are teetering on the edge of becoming combatants, while a television personality in Russia has warned of a potential nuclear war that would, in his words, only be survived by mutants. That may be a sign that the aid is working. The war is not over, but so far, the Russian strategic objectives have been defeated. General Mark Milley is chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He joined Austin to give a battlefield update. He says Ukraine remains free because of the bravery of the Ukrainian people, the competence of its military, and the support of the international community. He notes that Ukraine's new offensive in the South is showing progress. We are seeing real and measurable gains from Ukraine in the use of these systems. Meanwhile, the Biden administration has informed Congress that it will be asking for another package, this one for $2.2 billion, half for Ukraine and half for 18 countries in the region. Reporting for Pacifica Radio News KPFA, I'm Christopher Martinez. And the Queen of the United Kingdom is dead. Bells have tolled around Britain and mourners are flocking to the palace gates to honor Queen Elizabeth II as the country prepares for a new age under a new king. King Charles III planned to meet today with Prime Minister and address a nation grieving, the only British monarch most of the world has known. She was the longest queen monarch in the throne for some 70 years. An e-cigarette Manufacturer Juul has been hit with a hefty fine. Nadia Ramlagan reports. 
After an investigation found the e-cigarette maker Juul Labs deliberately targeted young people using a variety of marketing practices, 34 states will collectively receive more than $438 million as part of a court settlement. Tennessee Attorney General Jonathan Scrimetti says in addition to explicit advertising to kids, the company is required to stop even so-called subtle forms of marketing through social media and other avenues. Such as funding education programs, which let them put their name and the existence of their product in front of kids. They're not allowed to use people under the age of 35 in their marketing, so they can't pay influencers. They can't use celebrities who are younger, who appeal to younger people. I'm Nadia Ramlagan for Pacifica Network and Public News Service. The sweltering heat may be over in California just in time for Hurricane Hay to hit the southern part of the state. Officials warn of flash floods and high winds. I'm Christina Onestead reporting for Pacifica Radio. Those were today's news headlines. In early August 2022, The Committee on the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination, or the CERD, which is a part of the United Nations work under the High Commissioner for Human Rights, held its 107th session. The session took place in Geneva, and the CERD Committee examined the reports of seven countries, including the United States. 2014 was the last time that the United States had appeared before the CERD committee, and several issues were raised about the United States' racial discrimination, its criminalization, and state-sanctioned violence against Black people and other racialized people living in the country. In particular, the committee heard from Mike Brown's family and the warnings of a, a situation that was bleak. That was in 2014. Fast forward to 2022, and the committee continued to hear some of the same issues with additional issues, such as the decision in Dobbs coming to the fore. On August 30th, 2022, the CERD released its concluding report and held a press briefing where it went over some of its recommendations and concerns with respect to the United States and its adherence to the obligations under the convention to eliminate racial discrimination. Let's hear part of that briefing. The committee was concerned that racial and ethnic minorities are disproportionately impacted by higher maternal morbidity and mortality rates. And secondly, there is a higher risk of unwanted pregnancy among uh, racial and ethnic minorities, and also the social and economic uh, situation of racial minorities is also something that we have to take into consideration. And uh, they always have a a barrier to accessing safe abortion. Higher risk of unwanted pregnancies and the lack of means to overcome socioeconomic barriers to access safe abortion. Regarding the Supreme Court ruling in DOPS in June, the committee was deeply concerned about the disparate impact on the sexual and reproductive health and rights of racial and ethnic minorities, particularly those with low income. It recommended that the state party should take further steps 
to eliminate racial and ethnic disparities in sexual and reproductive health and rights. It also requested that the state party should adopt all necessary measures to address the profound disparate impact of the DOPS decision on women of racial and ethnic minorities, indigenous women and those with low incomes. The committee also expressed concern over the brutality and excessive and deadly force by law enforcement officials against racial and ethnic minorities and the continued impunity for abuse by police and customs and border protection officers. The committee urged the state party to review federal and state legislation regulating the use of legal force by law enforcement officials to ensure that they are in line with international law and standards. It also asked the USA to create or strengthen independent oversight bodies to ensure accountability of law enforcement officials for inappropriate use of force. Good afternoon. I'm Jamie from Associated Press. If you could give your overall assessment, particularly with the United States, in terms of their amenability or their willingness to listen to the your, your recommendations. And then the second thing, mass incarceration. I mean, there's a mass incarceration of a lot of African-Americans in America. You mentioned uh, men in particular. What would you say about that issue in particular, about the disparity in incarceration in the United States with regard to uh, African-American males in particular? The issue of um, mass incarceration and the disparate impact um, of, of the criminal justice system in the United States on black people was raised during the dialogue. It's uh, addressed comprehensively in the report. And even the committee said that this was one of the of the issues of particular importance where it draws particular attention of the state party to. And here we've built upon, as you said, numerous submissions that were made by NGOs and other sources of information. And we made quite clear recommendations and quite concrete recommendations uh, with regard to uh, mandatory minimum drug offense sentencing policies, with regard to other laws that might lead to a racially biased result, with regard to over-policing um, that disproportionately affects um, um, Black communities. And we also addressed the issue of the death penalty and its disparate impact and other issues, topics in the context of the criminal justice system, such as the collateral consequences for racial and ethnic minorities, and also issues like solitary confinement. So it's been an issue that's been at the center of the dialogue, I would say. And that was the press briefing for the committee to eliminate racial discrimination. The CERD held on August 30th, where three of the committee members spoke up and spoke out about their concerns that the committee had with the United Nations and its efforts with respect to eliminating racial discrimination, talking not just about the issues of reproductive justice, mass incarceration and the death penalty that you just heard, but issues relating to indigenous rights, issues relating to the right to peaceful protest and so much more. If you want more information, you can go to the website of the United Nations Human Rights Commission, where you can not only find the press briefing, but the recordings of the interrogation of the United States delegation itself. I'm so pleased to welcome my first guest, Rukia Lumumba. But before we do that, let's go to this clip. 
These sites will be well stocked, they will be well staffed, and they will be well prepared to handle the continued emergency of the coming days. It's very frustrating for us as a citizen. We are taxpaying citizens, so we shouldn't have to live like this. We understand your impatience with this challenge, and all of that is warranted. I just want to assure you that you have a unified front uh, at this hour, at this time, uh, endeavoring to fix it. It's a larger issue. I don't think that this is a one-off uh, at the end of the day. Having water that you can't drink means that we have to outsource all of our drinks, um, which is very expensive for the business. We have to boil all of our water. It adds so many more steps. And it's just scary because day to day, we don't know what will happen. The uncertainty, the tragedy, the humanitarian crisis that is the water crisis in Jackson, Mississippi. Rukia Lumumba is executive director of the People's Advocacy Institute, co-coordinator of the Electoral Justice Project and campaign co-coordinator of the successful committee to elect Shokwe Antar Lumumba for mayor of Jackson, Mississippi. Rukia is a transformative justice strategist and human rights advocate. She continues the Lumumba family's rich history of advancing issues and initiatives that elevate the legal, economic, health, and educational rights of individuals, families, and communities. She currently co-chairs the People's Assembly process in Jackson, Mississippi, which works for and to increase community access to city government and to institutionalize people's assemblies as community governing models that enable a deep democratic participation of people in their own governance. So excited to have you here and to be speaking with you, Rukia. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us on Sojourner Truth. You know, it's really heartbreaking to see what's happening with our family and with our communities in Jackson, Mississippi. Would you please give people sort of a brief understanding of what happened? How do we go from not talking about Jackson and water nationally to now talking about this water crisis? How do we get to this place? Yeah, well, it's been a long time coming, and I want to thank you and everyone who's tuned in for listening and for lifting up what's happening here in Jackson, because we know what's happening in Jackson is likely happening in many rural towns, as well as other communities um, across this U.S., um, where infrastructure hasn't been invested in properly by the state and federal government in decades. Um, so in Jackson, what we see is something that has been on the horizon uh, for decades, a uh, very, very long time. Uh, since I was a child, we have boil water notices. Uh, most people don't drink the water uh, even when there's not a boil water notice. And so what we're seeing in Jackson is a system that finally shut down. Uh, city government can only put so many Band-Aids on a problem that requires a whole renovation, that requires uh, you know, a complete new leg, a new limb. Um, and so what we see is we see a, 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 a government, a state government that has been willfully neglectful, um, failing to properly fund the city every year 
um, since 1997. We know for a fact that every administration has asked for funding to support infrastructure improvements. Um, even last year when we looked, um, the uh, city of Jackson under uh, my brother, Shaykhan Sarr, asked for, uh, you know, 26 million, um, actually started at 40, uh, asked for a little higher than that, but 26 million, and ended up getting 3 million from the state. Um, and so we also see a continued divestment in the capital city, uh, a city that is 86% um, Black, a city that uh, is the largest city by far, by three, in the state of Mississippi, a city that houses all of the legislative bodies, um, offices, as well as the governor's mansion, a city that is heavily relied on uh, by state government, but a city where the residents have been holding the burden of paying for the infrastructure cost on their own. So we see that's how we got it. It's really, again, the story of the infrastructure divestment, which of course is part of all of these larger struggles and fights that we're having, particularly in places that are majority black across the nation and across the world. I was watching, as I'm sure others were as well, um, when the governor of Mississippi uh, gave his you know, discussion or, or a speech about what was happening. And I was really not surprised, but outraged, I think is the proper word, when I heard him say, that you know, this water crisis in Jackson, in which people are not able to use water for any purpose, at, at least at that time, that that was just going to go on indefinitely. And you know, I'm just thinking, what is his play here? I mean, I know there was a a battle around the airport. Like, I'm trying to understand, other than just the rank white supremacy and racism, what does he hope to gain? What is the pressure he's trying to apply? by just taking a totally hands-off approach to what's happening to the people of the largest city in the state and the capital city. Well, you know, we've been here before with him and with other administrations, government administrations on the state level. Um, you know, last year with him alone, he had 225 days of oil water notice. Uh, he took three weeks before he called for a national uh, state emergency rather uh, after the winter storm crisis that we had in 2021, which left us without water, heat, um, and burst 130 pipes across the city and many rural communities as well. Uh, it took him three weeks before he called for a state of emergency. We had to save ourselves as we've often done. Um, so that's no surprise. So one, one is just irresponsibility. But the other piece is, you know, the capital city is a place that uh, holds a lot of capital. <laughs> you know, it's a place that, that he wants back. It is uh, a place where the state would love to, to have control over. And so you talk about the airport, there have been consistent plays to take power away from the municipality, uh, the municipal government, and to remove that power and place it in the hands of the state. So they want a state takeover. Um, and so that includes, you know, attempts to try to take the airport. Right. Uh, to the extent that even last year, um, when um, legislative bills were introduced, proposals were introduced, asking for infrastructure support, we have the Lieutenant Governor, Daryl Gert Holzman, uh, say 
you know, well, let's talk about that airport and then we'll see what we'll do with your infrastructure funds, right? Let's see if you'll drop that lawsuit for the airport, right? So, you know, that's, you know, it's always a play to take over. Uh, we had them try to take our school board, um, not board, our school district in 2018. They failed at that attempt. And now it's the water infrastructure. You know, the play is let's take as much out, let's not put anything in so that it can continue just to deteriorate. The city infrastructure deteriorating, the economy deteriorate. Let's just continue to extract, extract, extract until there's nothing left and they have to give it to us or they have to relinquish that power over resources. That is such a familiar tune. Again, not just in terms of what's happening and what happens here in Black communities um, and communities of color, but what is happening you know, with our folks across the world. You're talking about Mississippi. You could be talking about the extraction that happens in Ghana um, by corporations and you know, governments, including the United States government and the extraction that happens in our communities all over the world. What are folks on the ground doing? Because that's also part of what happens, right? Is that we save us, we help us, we come to each other's aid. I know that, you know, we've been seeing videos and footage, images of pallets of water and volunteers out there making sure that water is getting to the people. Could you please let us know about the efforts that are being made um, by both the city and the grassroots organizations, as well as individuals to support our communities at this critical time? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, we say that Jackson residents and leadership have been the real heroes of this story. Even as the state has withheld resources and watched our infrastructure crumble for decades, we've been resilient and resourceful. We've even committed to paying higher taxes to help fix this problem. It was Jackson residents that in 2013 agreed to tax themselves an additional 1% and all of that money goes to uh, infrastructure improvements. State then came in and said, oh no, we have to control that money. We have to regulate that money. You can't, a municipality can't tax itself. We have to have a board that controls that. Um, and so, you know, over and over again, as you said, um, the people, have been the ones responding and saving themselves. Uh, so, you know, even now, when we look at what's happening, um, the Mississippi Rapid Response Coalition is the coalition that I uh, am spearheading and a part of, and it's made up of over 30 organizations across uh, Mississippi, um, but it's led by People's Advocacy Institute, the Mississippi Poor People's Campaign, One Voice Mississippi, Immigrant Alliance for Justice and Equity, Alternate Roots, Mississippi Votes, Operation Good, Strong Arms of Mississippi. I'm gonna say their names, y'all, because it's important work and it's tiring work. Mississippi Black Women's Roundtable, Southern Poverty Law Center. And as I mentioned before, over 30 other organizations that have come together to mobilize communities across Jackson and oftentimes across Mississippi to provide rapid response support in times of crisis like the one that we're in. Um, so this is whether they're caused by natural disasters or infrastructure failures. So this same group, these same people um, were out and about last year, were out and about in 2020 when we had to shut down and are out daily passing out water. Um, over the past week, over the past seven days, not concluding this week, just last week, the seven days that just passed, we distributed 440 uh, and a half pallets of water. 
um, over 37,000 cases of water, over a million bottles of water, which we really want to work on. We're looking at a recycling plan right now for that, and over 168,000 uh, gallons of water. Um, and so, you know, folks are out here. We're out here doing important work to save ourselves. Excellent. That's the part I like to hear about the most. <laughs> the pushback, the stand up, the pull together, because it's a reminder to us, right, um, that we do save ourselves. We do keep us safe. You know, we got us. All of those things that sound trite when we say them or when they got a hashtag in front of them, that's really what is happening with us. And so how do we join in that effort? And what do people do who are listening right now who want to help the people of Jackson with this humanitarian crisis that you all are facing? And how do people connect with you as well? Thank you so much. So folks should go to jacksonpeoplesassembly.org. That's J-X-N peoples with an S, assembly.org. Soon as you log on there, soon as you get there, it'll have a, a site that says, uh, we need you, and, or we need your support, click here. Um, and it'll take you to all of the things, how you can volunteer, and so on. And then to reach me, uh, the best way to reach me is by emailing me at rikia at peoples, with an S, advocacyinstitute.com. That's rikia, R-U-K-I-A, at peoples with an S advocacy institute.com or you can find me on Instagram at Rakia Lumumba on Facebook again Rakia Lumumba or on Twitter at Rakia Lumumba and that's R-U-K-I-A-L-U-M-U-N-B-A. I really appreciate you Nana and all of the work that you do uh, and for consistently lifting up our struggle and wins across the world. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. I know that you are off, but you were able before you stepped up on there, that plane to get out of here to um, join us. And so we're really, 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 really thankful for that. Appreciate you and um, safe travels. Thank you so very much, Rakia. Thank you. We're now going to take a station break. And when we come back, we're going to have a discussion with the LA organizer of the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, Meraki Alimsagad, right after this station break. This is Nana Jumpy, 
today's guest host of Sojourner Truths. We are so pleased to be able to speak again with our comrade warrior, Marki Alemsaged. Now on Thursday, September 15th, 2022, President Biden is gonna host the United We Stand Summit at the White House, allegedly under the banner of countering hate-fueled violence. Social justice organizers and activists say that in actuality, his surveillance summit ends to or aims to perpetuate harmful and racist counter-terrorist structures and concepts that directly harm Black communities. Biden and his administration have been invoking this white supremacist violence inflicted on Black and other marginalized communities in Charleston, Virginia, Buffalo, New York, Uvalde, Texas, and all across the United States to increase the levels of surveillance going on within the United States. Meraki is here with us to share the community's concerns about how the surveillance policies expected to be described in the president's new initiative will impact our communities. Meraki Alimsaget is Baji's Los Angeles organizer. She's a second generation Ethiopian immigrant who was born and raised in Los Angeles to two revolutionaries. As a result, Meraki has spent her lifetime challenging unjust systems of, of oppression with the knowledge that the personal is political and the political is personal. Their nascent professional career is built atop years of community organizing with heavy involvement in local, national, and international Black migrant communities. Meraki is a Pan-African abolitionist and believes in approaching social justice issues from an intersectional lens. The Black Alliance for Just Immigration, also known as BAJI, is a US-based national Black racial justice and immigrant rights organization that educates, advocates, and organizes Black migrants and African-Americans for racial, social, and economic justice and Black liberation, Full transparency, I am its executive director and glad to get into it with my sibling comrade, Meraki. Greetings. Greetings, Nana. Thank you so much for having me on. Such a pleasure to be on with you in this capacity. Now, the Biden administration is describing its initiatives as part of this effort to address white supremacist violence, which, you know, people say, what's the concern? Isn't that what we're trying to do? Look at what this violence um, has done. Uh, seems like a wonderful plan. Your response. Right. Thank you for that question. Um, my response is this is a, a very well, well hidden um, plot of the Biden administration, right? Um, as you said before, they're doing this under the guise of countering hate field violence, but we know that this actually is only going to perpetuate harmful and racist counter-terrorist structures and concepts that directly harm Black communities. Um, Black people have been targeted by government surveillance programs and labeled 
as black identity extremists since the 1960s, right, in order to monitor black civil rights leaders. Um, and government-funded programs like COINTELPRO were used to infiltrate, surveil, and criminalize black and brown communities for their social and political activism. Um, similarly, black migrant communities in cities across the country have now greatly suffered as targets of CVE programs or countering violent extremism. Um, we've seen this happen in cities like Boston, Minneapolis, and Los Angeles. And um, we know that while the government is um, invoking this, the white supremacist violence and terror that are experienced by black and other marginalized communities um, across the US, um, they're doing so really in order to legitimize another white supremacist form of violence, uh, which is surveillance. Um, so while these communities continue to suffer from overt white supremacist acts of violence, um, they're now made to endure policies that uphold white supremacy um, and are now also forced to suffer through enforcers of those policies exploiting their plight um, for a summit such as this. You mentioned and described um, the Countering Violent Extremism program. And as part of um, his campaign, President Biden promised to end the countering violent extremism program. And if you, you know, look at the budget, for example, um, and appropriations, you don't see CVE in that way anymore. And so, um, what, isn't it true that that program was trashed? You're, you know, is, or should, do we still need to be concerned about that type of surveillance? Right, so you're right. On his campaign trail, President Biden did promise to end a CVE program. Um, and unfortunately, he is instead, he's kept this program alive under a rebrand called the Center for Prevention Programs and Partnership, otherwise known as CP3. Um, and that's being held within the Department of Homeland Security. Um, so CP3 and other policies that um, President Biden has kept alive or created even um, for in the White House announcement for this surveillance summit, um, they sort of tout that the national strategy for countering domestic terrorism is the so-called first ever policy of its kind. This policy um, explicitly legalizes data sharing between law enforcement agencies it increases data sharing and online surveillance between government and tech companies and prioritizes so-called domestic violent extremism, domestic terrorism, and CVE programs. So CVE is very much so still alive under the Biden administration. He may have wiped out the name of that program, but he's continuing to um, perpetuate CVE in many different forms and different rebrandings um, within DHS and local law enforcement. I'm gonna ask you about uh, uh, an event that you're gonna do. Uh, it's uh, in part of Baji's Abolition Week of Action next week that relates directly to this summit and this conversation um, and discussion and fight around surveillance. But before we do that, really briefly, one of the things that concerned me with CVE, amongst others, because there's a bunch to be concerned about, was the way in which surveillance was being extended into the schools. I mean, the schools, not colleges, of course, there too, but regular old middle school, high school. 
does the rebrand include that kind of surveillance? Um, and then I'll ask you about how you're going to lift up these issues next week. Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, absolutely, it does, right? The CV framework um, we've seen in Boston, Minneapolis, and Los Angeles as well, that school-based CV programming is taking place, right? Um, we're seeing um, that between K and 12th grade and some higher education as well um, are now including protocols so that um, educators, peers, um, faith leaders, um, mental health experts are able to um, sort of be deputized by um, LAPD or by DHS by way of LAPD or other local law enforcement agencies to um, do what they call um, detectable behaviors and predict predict terrorist violence, um, although we know that this is thoroughly disproven, been disproven, right? We've seen um, in Boston that researchers uh, made it clear that there is no linear path to violent extremism, right? And there are no valid or reliable indicators to predict who is more likely to engage in violent extremism. Um, yet these programs continue to persist um, and they are happening in, um, in not only in school programs, but also in after school activities, in youth mentorship programs. Um, and now we're also seeing in Los Angeles that this is being um, pushed in uh, faith groups as well and in um, social workers and uh, mental health workers um, interactions with youth. So these CV programs are directly targeting um, our youth, and we know that they're also directly targeting particularly Black youth, Black migrant youth in some areas. East Africans are particularly being targeted. Um, Muslim communities are being targeted heavily by this, and um, those with mental health issues as well. Um, so we're seeing that this is becoming a, a, a tool for the state to create um, a a great amount of division among our communities that are being targeted. Thank you so much, Meraki. In this last minute, could you talk about what you and Baji are planning to do next week um, with relation to this issue of surveillance as part of this uh, Abolition Week of Action and share with folks how they can plug in if they're interested? Absolutely, yeah. So, um, of course, we're denouncing and condemning the Surveillance Summit, and um, we will be holding a press conference on Wednesday, September 14th at 9.30 a.m. Pacific Time um, in front of Los Angeles City Hall, um, which is across the street from LAPD headquarters at 200 North Main Street in L.A., um, we'll be returning to the spot where we last stood to oppose LA City Council approving of a DHS-funded grant to LAPD for the um, another rebranding of CVE, the Targeted Violence and Terrorism Prevention Program. Um, this program specifically will deputize 500 community leaders to surveil and criminalize youth. Um, so we will be um, joining Baji and Until We're Free Coalition's Abolition Week of Action to call out um, the need for the abolition of 
surveillance, the abolition of CVE programs, and the abolition of the entities that uphold these programs. Um, we will be joining a national campaign um, for the abolishment of carceral systems and the abolishment of um, uh, policing as we know it, and um, are going to be um, having a webinar as well on Tuesday evening um, that folks can tune into um, to Tuesday evening at 6 p.m. that folks can tune into to learn a bit more about this struggle and to learn a bit more about why we are going to be in front of City Hall on Wednesday morning um, and to learn more about why surveilling is so anti-Black and needs to be abolished. And, and how do folks reach you directly if they want to reach you or how do they reach Baji? Yes, so if folks want to reach me directly, they can reach me at meraki at baji.org. That's M as in Mary, A-R-A-K-Y at baji, B-A-J-I dot O-R-G. If they want to learn more about Baji, they can also reach out to info at baji.org. That's I-N-F-O at Baji.org um, to learn more about what's going on. And they can also stay tuned in to Baji's social media, um, which is their Twitter is at Baji Tweet. Their Instagram is um, Insta Baji. Those are ways folks can get involved. Thank you so very much. Thank you for sharing this information. Thank you for the work that you are doing and have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. Thank you so much for having me. When we look through the recent headlines of mainstream media, it's clear that there's a visible increase in state-sponsored attacks on public protests. The Committee on the UN Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, or CERD, on August 30th in its report raised serious concerns about the governmental crackdowns in the United States on public protests, citing Florida's HB1 bill. But recent incidents right here in Los Angeles confirm that the crackdown isn't limited to that sunshine state. And there's much to crack down about. To dig deeper into the role that community plays in holding electeds to account, I'd like to welcome Matios Kadani. But before we do so, let's hear this clip. When it comes to public safety in this nation, the answer is not defund the police, it's fund the police. Fund the police. And give them, we expect them to do everything. We expect them to be, to protect us, to be psychologists, and to be sociologists. I mean, we expect you to do everything. We expect them to do everything. We're expecting them to do nothing, but I guess some folks are expecting them to do everything. I know Matias Kadani is not one of them. Matias Kadani is a community organizer with the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition, a group that works to dismantle police surveillance programs, focusing significantly on the intersection of police violence and the banishment of targeted communities. 
the Stop LEPV Spine Coalition is housed in Los Angeles Community Action Network, or LA CAN, in Skid Row. LA CAN's constituency consists of extremely low income and unhoused people, primarily those living in downtown LA and South Central LA. Greetings, Matthias. Thank you so much for joining us. Greetings, Nana. It's so good to be here. Thank you for having me. So listening to that clip, you know, which burns my ears, but had to listen to it because we can see that the empire is certainly striking back when it comes to the efforts that communities have been making to push for abolition of carceral systems, to push for the defunding of police, to push for alternatives um, as the standard in terms of communities taking care of our own safety. But we've also seen a lot of pushback and um, a recent local paper <laughs> recently described um, bullying is a term that they use of LA City Council. Where do you think this characterization is coming from? It's not new, but it's definitely getting louder. Where do you think it's coming from? Yeah, thanks so much for asking that, Nana. And, you know, I think what Biden said is such an obfuscation of what we do want. We don't want the police to do everything right. And if anything, at the forefront of these calls is that we don't want them to kill Black people, right, uh, more than anything. And so even this characterization of bullying city council, um, it's just an effort to delegitimize genuine dissent to oppressive state violence. And I think the choice of the word bullying is really quite silly but also intentional. Um, if we consider the fact that the people being bullied here are city council members paid a six figure salary, uh, many of which have the backing of the same violent police forces we're talking about, a police force with a $3.2 billion budget. And the bullies in question are largely black or Latinx led, poor, unhoused, formerly unhoused community members who face the immediate impact of the decisions that these city council members make. Uh, it's simply meant to malign the community, I think. I've been here a long time, Matias. Yeah, you've heard me say before, I'm old as dirt and twice as funky. Um, passionate, even vulgar-filled um, uh, commentary, pushback by community members in city council right here in LA, but also in you know other hearings held by other governmental agencies of the city, the county, that's not unusual. I mean, at one point they had a man in a clan, a clan hood that would come in and would go off on people. And so, you know, and I never heard him described as a bully, right? Even though he would specifically target like black and brown council people to go after in really vile racist ways. And so what is it about these recent protests? What's happening with them that seems to be getting under the skin of these elected officials? Yeah, you know, there's, I, you know, I think we're always going to see a disparity in how white supremacist uh, culture is treated versus how black resistance is treated. And there's always been a culture of black and brown resistance here in LA. Uh, in short, I think it's, I think it's because it's working, right? So since the 2020 George Floyd uprisings and since COVID hit the scene, we've seen a swell in urgency from community members to push back uh, against this violent state oppression. And understandably so, we've seen houselessness skyrocket. Uh, that was already on the rise before the pandemic. Um, concurrently, we've seen police violence skyrocket and demands to defund or abolish the police 
were met with an increase in police funding, just like we heard Biden say. Um, and so both these things have gotten worse. Uh, this year, we've had 25 people shot by LAPD. 13 of those people were killed. That number doesn't include the killing of 14-year-old Valentina Oriana Peralta. Uh, and houselessness has been addressed through violent sweeps that inevitably lead to the death of unhoused community members. And I remember when this resistance really popped off during the 2020 uprisings where public comment segments over Zoom started to last hours. People you know, felt this urgency, had a chance to speak and started speaking more and more. And so that's when these arbitrary restrictions on public comment took place, these 45 minute time limits uh, or these arbitrary time limits and this really cherry picking of who's speaking, who's silenced. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I think we're also seeing um, a response to these long cemented public figures, you know, being voted out. My council member who, you know, has been in the position, uh, Gil Cedillo, where he's uh, uplifted and upheld landlords, real estate developers, corporations, you know, he's been voted out. And so I think they're feeling the pressure. I think they're feeling the effects of power building and a culture of resistance here in Los Angeles. When you talk about the restrictions that are being placed on when people can talk and how people can talk and just a lot of gatekeeping. Um, and, you know, I, as a, uh, activist slash organizer myself, call in and try to get on. And, you know, if you got the, the nod, you may get in. And if you don't got the nod, then you may not get in. And that's clearly happening. I'm thinking about the LA police commission because, you know, it seems that the restrictions there continue. Um, can you share what is happening over there? Like, are they finally letting people in or, you know, is that still not allowed? Is it still just by Zoom and they're picking who and and how long are people talking? Give us a sense of this democratic space, quote unquote, that, um, you know, of what's happening when people are trying to engage as community. Yeah, quote unquote is is right. Um, yeah, the Board of Police Commissioners is not yet in person and they're citing COVID as a primary concern, which is ironic because the LAPD has notoriously been resistant to adhering to COVID restrictions. Uh, the meetings are held at 9 a.m. on a Tuesday, which is inaccessible really to anyone that has to work for a living. Um, and we do see that same kind of cherry picking in regards to public comment, where we'll see a lot of pro-police folks stack the calls and be able to say hateful, racist, anti-Black things without interruption. But the second, it's evidently a Black speaker or somebody who's critical of the LAPD, their comments will often be cut off. Um, but, you know, the Board of Police Commissioners has had a century of giving the facade of oversight while, like, allowing racist violence. Uh, this past year alone, they upheld zero racial bias complaints out of nearly a thousand levied against the LAPD. And they consistently expand LAPD means of enacting violence and surveillance to the total objection of local community groups. Uh, they just recently passed a surveillance oversight and adoption model that nearly two dozen community groups, including the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, including the ACLU that created this oversight model and framework said, we do not want. They said it doesn't work. It's actually a means of providing political cover for the LAPD to expand these surveillance programs. So in the absence of this sort of community support, the LAPD and the Board of Police Commissioners actually brought in Brian Hofer, an Oakland-based uh, surveillance consultant to speak for the LA community. So we see the manufacturing consent when they don't have it and uh, when it runs contrary to uh, you know, what the people actually get across and speak. 
as I said at the top of this segment, um, the CERD committee was really concerned about this issue of public protest and the ways in which they felt that various governmental uh, entities throughout the United States were clamping down on public protests while at the same time talking about democracy and it spoke up specifically about what they saw as a disproportionate attack, a disproportionate impact on black communities and other communities of color, you know, as, as you've raised, focusing specifically here in Los Angeles. And so as we wind down this section, could you please talk to us about, you know, until abolition, <laughs> when we won't have any governments in this way, but until abolition, what are the ways that local governments and their agencies should be operating to make sure that community members can fully participate in their meetings? It may seem obvious, but I think we may have forgotten what this is supposed to look like. Yeah, so I think in a dream world, yeah, I think consideration would be given to the most impacted community members, the people that feel the brunt of these decisions more than any other group. And historically, that's been uh, Black, poor, unhoused, uh, you know, our Latinx community here in LA. Um, and, you know, ensuring they have accessibility to these spaces. And that may look different in different places. Um, but frankly, I have more faith in our community's ability to resist regardless of what safeguards they put in place, we're gonna get our point across and you know, we will attain abolition and liberation. Yes, yes, we will. Mateos, how do people get in touch with you and stop LAPD spying? If they wanna learn more, if they wanna engage the fight, what do they do? Yeah, so you can email us at stoplapdspying at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram or Twitter. We're stoplapdspying on both. Shoot us a DM. Also join our weekly webinars. Uh, Tuesday night, they're over Zoom. Uh, they cover different topics. Yeah, plug in, join the fight. Thanks so Thank much. you. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I so appreciate you, comrade. As you know, thank you. Thanks, Stop LAPD Spying for the work that you're doing. Um, that work has been work that's been happening for a long time. Appreciate you. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Will do. And happy birthday to my comrade Meraki. I know she didn't want me to say that, but uh, thank you. <laughs> Take care. All right. See, you said it. So now I can say it too. Happy birthday, Meraki. I was trying to keep that in my mouth. Thank you. Thank you. We are out of time. Time flies when we're doing good things and having good conversation. I'd like to thank our guests, the Sojourner Truth team, including my dear sister, Margaret Prescott, for inviting me to speak today and to join as a guest host, our board operator for today, Gary Baca, and assistant producer, Alicia Vargas. If you'd like a copy of today's show, you can contact the Pacific Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to pacificaradio.org. You can also go to SoundCloud. You can find So True Radio on Twitter and on Facebook. Plug in and stay energized. Stay tuned for Democracy Now! This is your guest host, Nana Jumpy. Have a great weekend.